um, that why are we celebrating 500 years of Aruba when Aruba's been around for millions of years? You know, why are we just celebrating when the, um, the uh, explorers came and why aren't we more focused on the archaic people who lived here? And, and I agreed with that. And then he said, um, and there were never any giants in Aruba, you know, out of nowhere, you know, no one's talking about giants, doesn't come up. And he just goes on this little bit of a rant um, uh, over the top rant about, you know, how there were no giants in Aruba. And that was just made up by the early explorers to sell newspapers, which is just so absurd um, at, at its core. And once he said that, then I said, oh my gosh, there must have been giants on This is Heather Arnold. I'm writing a book, The Islands of the Giants, The Lost Race of Giants of Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. And you're listening to the Prometheus Lens Broadcast. You know, I always said that I would never bow to any corporate sponsor. But hey, rest assured, this ain't corporate. Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company, been a sponsor of my show, The Dig Bible Podcast. They've come on board with the Prometheus Lens. I'm here to tell you guys, if you like good, bold, smooth finished coffee, check these guys out. I'm a personal customer. Been, been that way for a, quite some time now. Uh, the breakfast blend, real good for the morning. But then you got, for your hardcore guys that like their coffee with a little bit of legs, they have the Flightline Joe. I'm telling you, ladies, don't drink this because it's going to put hair on your chest. <laughs> but no, guys, if you want to help sponsor the show, help keep the lights on, go on over to uh, kevlarjoes.com, check out their stuff, and see uh, what blend you like. He's got several to choose from. All things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Kaiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens. This, this development of this knowledge that's being talked about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. We are all on the hero's journey. Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the Sitchin mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. Different perspective. Hey guys, what's happening? What's up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, a place where the conversations are always enlightening. I'm your host, Justin. And here with this show, we just use the allegory of the Prometheus lens just to take a second look at everything. I love history. I love just looking at alternative views. And when we go and we just look at things and often we find out that what we are told, what we are taught don't go hand in hand. So that's what this show is all about. It's the hero's journey and going through and just re-exploring everything. But today I uh, got an episode on the all fascinating subject of giants and you know we've always heard about giants as far as you know the biblical narrative and from fred zimmerman the mounds and the giants that we found in the ohio river valley well here we're going to take you a little further south we're going to take you into the the land of uh year-round summer we're going to take you to the lands of aruba and i know when you think aruba you think of just the beach and all this beautiful weather and just paradise you know my me i don't think of of giants when I hear the word Aruba. Well, that's not until I met this woman. 
Heather Arnold, and she is the author of the book Giants of Aruba, and we brought her on. I've had her on with the Dig Bible podcast once before, but I'm bringing her back because she's always finding new stuff, and the, the conversations are always enlightening. So, yeah, pun intended. But, Heather, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me again, Justin. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, Heather, uh, for those that uh, just getting exposed to you and give us a little synopsis and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you. Yes, I um, well, became interested in what was going on down here in Aruba, Bonaire and Curacao, the ABC Islands. Uh, when I moved down here originally in 2005 and I started a tour company and I wanted my tours to be historically accurate. And I found that to be quite challenging. It was quite challenging finding the true history of um, Aruba, in particular, where I was based. Uh, the islands were originally called the Useless Islands by the original um, explorers who came here, and, um, and which I thought was curious because there is actually gold uh, in Aruba, um, as well as there were Brazil wood trees, which were very important. Um, to the people during that time in the, the early 1500s. So um, I began to do more research and dig into the archeology span of the islands. And my first um, realization that there was something going on, there was a global connection between these islands and the world was the spiral petroglyphs that were found. Very similar petroglyphs that are found out west in Europe, I even saw some in Easter Island. So this, these same repeating patterns of petroglyphs. So I knew, and it wasn't just the spirals, it's crosses and the SWAT sticker, but the original one that was the right way. And um, the, the, these um, people, the, the different figures, amorphic figures. So then I realized, well, there's something greater going on here than just... Um, you know, sun and fun. And it certainly wasn't a useless island because there was definitely something going on on all three islands contemporaneous to what was going on globally. And so then I began to dig into the archaeological record and discover the, um, the writings of Amerigo Vespucci, who was the first explorer to come to the island of Aruba with his team. And it was in his notes where he designated Aruba and Curacao at that time, he hadn't been to Bonaire yet, um, as the islands of the giants. And within that book, he details his interaction with the giants in, in um, great detail, as a matter of fact. And it was once I uncovered this facet and realized that Aruba's original name was the islands of the giants, it's when I tumbled down this rabbit hole that has sucked me in since 2005 and um, I can't get out. So it's uh, the giants, once they get you, you'll, the more questions you ask, the more questions you'll have. And, um, and it's just been a, a whirlwind investigating them ever since. And that's just amazing that you just stumbled across this you know you were wanting to start a tour company and just wanted to get some accurate history and and stumbled across this stuff and one thing i thought was really uh, fascinating uh, if you don't care to share the story about when you first went digging and you started talking to the local historians and how this this guy just out of nowhere started going off on you Yes. So it was actually when I started to do research online, first of all, it's, I mean, now if you do research online about the islands of the, generally my work will come up, but before then there was, it was so hard to find archeological reports. Why, by, by the way, most part are funded by the public. Um, it couldn't really get access to them. And all of a sudden I found um, this talk on the 500 year birthday of Aruba and the archeologist um, who was speaking about it in this recording and on YouTube uh, was saying, you know, and, and I agree with him um, that why are we celebrating 500 years of Aruba when Aruba has been around for millions of years? You know, why are we just celebrating when the, um, the uh, explorers came and why aren't we more focused on the archaic people who lived here? And, and I agreed with that. And then he said, um, 
And there were never any giants in Aruba, you know, out of nowhere, you know, no one's talking about giants, doesn't come up. And he just goes on this little bit of a rant um, uh, over the top rant about, you know, how there were no giants in Aruba. And that was just made up by the early explorers to sell newspapers, which is just so absurd um, at, at its core. And once he said that, then I said, oh, my gosh, there must have been giants on the islands because it was just too over the top. And that was the confirmation I needed. And since then, I've uh, amassed uh, a, a, probably over 100 uh, archaeological reports, almost every single archaeological report ever done on the skeletal remains of the giants of the three islands, Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao, and um, which were originally one island. So that's why I, I talk about them together. And um, through this uh, combing through of the archaeological report, I determined for sure there were giants uh, in Aruba, and it's been uh, covered up, ignored, forgotten, and um, and definitely I, I feel in some ways, you know, the giants chose me to bring them back to life in a sense by talking about them because they were amazing individuals who had a, an amazing history on the island with megaliths and petroglyphs and their ornate burials and their astronomical and celestial observations. So uh, I'm happy that I stumbled across that YouTube video because it really was the confirmation I needed that I was on the right path. And you mentioned uh, Amerigo Vespucci. You know, a lot of people theorize that that's how America got its name. You know, and, and our buddy Fritz, you know, he said that he he believes it's named after the, the serpent. You know, the, the the land of the serpent. You know, he's like that makes a lot more sense to me than Amerigo than America. But uh, that that's a whole other rabbit trail there. But uh, but where you mentioned uh, Vespucci. When I first discovered you and we got to talking a little over a year ago, I think you were like basically just going over the, the story that he wrote down. Was it his journal or, or were these letters? These, exactly. These were letters. Um, it's in the books that's published. Okay. You can get it on Amazon. Um, it's fascinating. Maybe people who aren't so into history would find it as fascinating as I did. But it's letters of the new world. And it's basically the, the reports he's doing, he's taking notes during his um, exploration because Vespucci had te a team with him. It wasn't just himself. He had um, people who were experts in flora and fauna and he had pharmacists and, and herbalists and doctors and all different types of people who were experts in their field that he brought over with him because it wasn't just an expedition to try to find gold and, and, and jewels, semi-precious stones, et cetera, which, uh, and, and mapping, which of course those were goals as well, but it was also to really report back the first sightings, the first information about everything that he was going to see. And so these were his letters that he wrote to the sovereigns um, that from his notes, basically detailing everything that occurred as he went from place to place to place. And he was very specific. He wrote about what people ate and what they wore, even, you know, their mating rituals and how they lived and how, where they slept and the children and everything, um, the flora, the fauna, the water supplies. So it's quite detailed. And it is in that book that he writes in his um his letter from, and this was in 1499, where he de he details. So to give you some context, the island he was at before, which I believe is um, an island that is off the coast of Colombia, was he had witnessed a human being on an op over an open fire on a spit, um, and the people were about to eat this human. They were cooking this human. And he was rather nonchalant about talking about that, where I would have ran the other way. But his interaction the his, on his next stop, which was Aruba, um, put him in such a tailspin that he actually wrote, writes in his uh, letter that he thought he was going to die that day, the day that he encountered the giants of Aruba. And um, he, I, I'm pretty positive he knew about the, there being at least 
um, gold on the island of Aruba. Now the archeologists and I will always butt heads about this because exploration of gold didn't occur on these islands until the 1800s. However, the fact that they called it the useless island um, is very indicative of this bait and switch type thing. You know, don't look here, look over there, you know, and, and trying to divert people from, oh, this is useless island. Why would we even go there? And I, I don't know if he heard from the mainland um, people whom Christopher Columbus had already established a relationship with and Vespucci continued that, uh, and that maybe there was gold on the island, but he definitely heard from the local people that they're on the mainland. When I say mainland, that's mainland of southern, uh, uh, northern South America, Venezuela, for example, which is now Venezuela. Um, he heard that there were giants and that was intriguing to him as well. So he, he sets off one day in his ship with his team and he reaches Aruba's shores and he, he and his team immediately notice large footprints in the sand and they're instantly hooked. They begin to track the footprints and come across these giant women. One is, he um, presumes as a grandmother, then a mother and two teenage girls. And they take him to their village where they're showing him how they're drinking brackish water and um but there's like no communication you know um dialogue that is understood by each of them it's more just physically motioning and uh he and the men are shocked at the size of these women they couldn't believe the size especially of the teenage girls who were younger and still taller than all the men and he uh he even states all these giants even if they were kneeling they would still be taller than him while standing and so the men um and his team decide to steal the teenage girls and bring them back to europe as trophies and this was actually sadly a common thing and as they're coming up with this concocting this plan 36 men who I suppose were on a hunting trip or who knows, come back into the village and they have weaponry that is giant, giant weapons. He describes some of the weapons. He can't figure out what some of them are. Um, they're kind of ambiguous. He knows that he even thinks that he couldn't even lift some of these weapons. And he immediately realized right away he had to abort mission. He could not steal these girls. He was outnumbered and these guys were huge. And he quickly aborted mission and the whole team went back to the boat. And as they're going back to their ship, the giants are right behind them the whole time. And even to the point where they get on the ship, the giants are still walking in the water coming after them. And they begin shooting arrows at Vespucci and his men. And Vespucci panics and orders them to shoot off cannons, not to kill the giants, but to scare them which he is successful in doing. And then they retreat and go back to the mainland of South America. And he writes, um, I named this place the Islands of the Giants due to the large stature of the people there. And it was after this encounter that he stated, this is the day I thought I was going to die. So that's pretty detailed analysis. And then when you couple that with the archeological record that shows that there were giants on this island, you realize Vespucci wasn't just trying to sell newspapers. He was actually documenting something that he encountered while um, visiting the island of Aruba. And I like too how you drew all the connections saying, you know, that they had, you know, scientists doctors documenting the flowers what the people eat how they dressed what they were drinking this was you know very thorough very specific and even to the the description of the giants you know thir there was 36 men i mean that, that's pretty specific and right. and when you read through it, it it's more like reading a like lewis and clark you know documenting all their expeditions it's not like it's a, a book of fairy tales and then, like you said, all, all the exactly. stuff that, that they found that is just uh, amazing, just hidden in, in plain sight. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when they spend, you speak, when people speak about, you know, the doubters speak about Vespucci, they, no one calls 
um, any claims that of falsehood on any of the other things he documented, on any of the other places he visited. It's just when it comes to the giants, you know, that he was exaggerating. He was speaking in hyperbole. He was trying to sell newspapers. It's just so interesting that giants and the talk of giants, so some reason triggers people. And um, it, it's, you know, it, it makes it more of a big deal. It makes it like a big red flag protesting the more you realize that there's something there. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree. It's like, don't look down. Right. right. That's, the, that's the first thing you're going to do. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, if you don't care, and now that we got the backstory, but I wanted you to tell that story. I, I always, I, that story is just fascinating. And I try to put myself in his shoes. Can you imagine, like you said, just going around and exploring all these places, seeing your, you know, seeing people cooked over a fire and people, you know, eating each other and some of the crazy things that you've seen and just be like, oh yeah, they were roasting these dudes and they threw a little paprika on him and, <laughs> I declined. I had, I was full from the last cannibal meal we had, right. <laughs> you know, and then these giants, he was terrified. Right. But uh, you mentioned all the, uh, the articles and the archeological stuff that they had found. You care to share some of that with us? Yes. Yeah, so um, the largest skull found was actually in Curacao. It was almost two feet large. And that skeleton um, has been that it was just the skull. And that has been written up in archaeological reports. The first one in the early 1900s by a German um, anthropologist who noted, first of all, that it was a female and not a male. But for some reason, it was flipped male, which is also 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 interestingly um, intriguing because things like this happen often. I'm seeing there's a lack of consistency in the archaeological reports. Um, so this skull was uh, elongated and was um, found in a cave in a burial site. And it was given to this German anthropologist because they couldn't believe how big it was uh, by the local population of Curacao. Consequent um, archaeological reports that state that these, the, the original investigator must have taken the wrong measurements and they take down the, the height of the skull and the width of the skull and the size of the skull and take it down so that it's more consistent with what they would expect to find. And I have that archeological report where they actually state that they don't trust the numbers of the original anthropologist who actually saw the skull. The consequential investigators who wrote about it did not see the skull. The skull, now we don't know where this is. Shockingly, we don't know where the skull is. But the original documenter did see the physical skull. And so I will depend on his numbers because there's no reason for him to have come up with some sort of hyperbolic statement um, about the size of the skull. So that was one indication, and that's the earliest indication. Then um, there is um, there are giant skeletons found in a one of the largest um, graveyards in the Caribbean in a place called Malmuk, and it is a, a huge expanse of land that is is protected still uh, by the Aruban government. No one can build there, although people are dying to. And that there, the expedition there uncovered at least 72 burials. They stopped excavating because a lot of the skeletal remains were so ancient that upon extracting them from the earth, they just became powder. So they just simply stopped excavating there. However, in 1970s, an independent investigator, a Dutch man living in Curacao, he financed an expedition to retrieve some of these giant bones. His archaeological report is called The Quest for the Giants. And he did uncover two giant skulls. And he was able to get them back to Curacao, where he begged people to look at them to scientists, anthropologists, and no one would come. Finally, the head of the, uh, that time of the Tropical Museum in Amsterdam, she did come over and she was interested and she did do measurements on the skull. And she determined, and it's in the archaeological report, that these skulls were of a giant race of people whom we had never heard of before, a new group of people that 
were unknown. They didn't match really anyone um, that she had seen or come across. She said maybe the closest would be this um, indigenous tribe that she had seen in Florida who seemed to be rather tall, but still she felt that these giants were taller. As a matter of fact, the one skull has its hand fused to its skull. Um, it was buried in the fetal position and with a hand to the skull. And that um, hand was helped her to make the determination that these were giants as well. She said it was the largest hand she had ever seen. Um, interestingly, and as an aside, she uh, wanted to do carbon-14 dating on the skulls. And she that was her last communication in the report that that was what they wanted to do next. And she boarded a plane and to go to South America and do more research on other um, passions that she had. And her plane crashed and she died. So no further uh, studies were done on the skulls. But the original investigator who found the skulls, he created a museum to house the skulls because no one wanted to house the skulls. That museum is still in existence. It's called the Curacao Museum. And um, it, in 1980 was the last documentation of those skulls. A reporter from um, the uh, Eagle in Pennsylvania, he had written, the Reading Eagle, sorry. He had written, or she, um, uh, a report of what it, those skulls look like, what, about the museum and specifically about the skulls and that they were of a giant race of people who lived on the islands and were over eight feet tall. So... I, of course, now want to track down the skeletons. I'm right next door to Curacao here in Aruba, and it's easy for me to go and see them. So before I made the trip, I decided to speak to the curator of the museum, as well as the head of scientific research at the museum. And it turns out that the Dutch government, now the Dutch are, um, these the three islands are under Dutch control. I mean, they're autonomous, but they're still part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. That the Dutch government came in and did renovations on the museum, and the skulls are now missing. No one knows where those skulls are. I am really pushing to repatriate the skulls. The skulls belong in Aruba. They were found in Aruba, and I'm hopeful that somewhere someone will come across the skulls and, and give them back to the island of Aruba. So that's another instance of, um, in the archaeological report, these giants. Also to mention that they did also have elongated skulls. So these were not just massive people, uh, bigger bones, bigger bodies, the width of their bodies were bigger, but they also had these giant skulls as well, um, elongated skulls. And then finally, you know, the bone air skeleton, the most complete giant skeletal remains ever found on the islands, which I just saw last week on the beautiful island of Bonaire. And, um, and that is of a giant confirmed by the government representative that covers, that controls that museum. The uh, bones were in a private museum. Now they're under the auspices of the Dutch government. Bonaire is 100% um, under the Dutch rule. And so um, that skeleton is just quite amazing and looks like so bizarre. And, and, and when you see the skeleton, you realize you're looking into the eyes of a giant and it's quite fascinating. And uh, more research needs to be done on, on him or her. It's still debatable uh, if it's a male or a female. What's going on, guys? Thanks for listening to the Prometheus Lens podcast. I asked if you've got anything out of this show so far and you're already subscribed. Please share us with a friend. Give us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That helps us to grow the show, get to new listeners. But it also helps us get better guests. Because a lot of times I send out emails to people and they check us out. And if we don't have a lot of good ratings and things like that, they won't even bother emailing me back. So anything you guys can do to help, I appreciate it. And if you're not a member of our members only group, I encourage you to do so. There's a lot of extra content on there. You get early access to episodes, uh, private chats. Uh, early access to episodes, members-only videos, and episodes. It's a great community. Join the band of brothers on this hero's journey. And that skeleton, uh, how tall was it, the one that stayed in that museum? So the there's a whole archaeological report done on this skeleton. It was published in 1980. 
and it's determined that it was over eight feet tall or more. It was the investigators believe that it was even taller than eight feet. And, um, and this skeleton is all crumpled into a ball, into a small case. I don't know why they don't lay it out as it was found because it was found in a supine position and the burial when they were um, by accident, they just stumbled upon it while they were um, building a bus stop in Bonaire. And, um, and, but I almost think that they purposely don't lay it out so that you don't see that it's a giant, but you can just even tell by the skull and the elongation and the eye sockets and the jaw, it's nothing that resembles modern humans. I mean, aside from, you know, two arms, two legs, five fingers, five, toes, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes, I'm sorry that, um, other than that, there's you know, you can tell that there's the size of the bones are different, the teeth are different. It's just a very strange looking skeleton. Did it uh, have uh, five fingers on each hand or did it have a sixth? Yes, no, it was five fingers on each hand and five toes on, on each and one row of teeth. Um, but yes, I know there are giants that have been reported with double rows of teeth and six fingers, six toes. And um, I know for a fact that that was a big thing in Chaco Canyon. You'll see petroglyphs and Mesa Verde of six-fingered handprints and six-toed footprints. But these guys, they, the, the ones I found, all the documentation, all of the archaeological record all say that they had um, 10 fingers and 10 toes. Because I, uh, I was thinking of uh, L.A. Marzulli. Right. He went to uh, Catalina Island, and they let him dig through the files. And he found a picture, and I can't remember the, the archaeologist's name, but he was standing over a grave, like leaning on a shovel. And then there was a, a picture of a skeleton in the fetal position, all curled up. And L.A. got to looking at it, and he's like, man, that thing looks big compared to him. And so he just took a bunch of pictures of it. And when they put it next to the guy, even curled up in the fetal position, it was almost as tall as he was. Wow. So then he took it and had him, you know, these people that's good at uh, digital animation or whatever, and just stretch this thing out. I mean, it was like almost 10 feet tall. Wow. And then once he got to looking, it actually had six fingers. Oh, interesting. And he told the curator of the museum and they were like, Oh, thank you. You know, and all this stuff. And then they ended up putting the picture up in the museum. Wow. But lo and behold, they Photoshopped the skeleton out. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. And L.A. went, you know, got in contact and he said it was a new curator of this museum. He's like, why did you do this? You know, and I discovered this for you. And then you finally put the picture up and you photoshopped the, the giant out. He said and the woman was like, sir, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just told to put this picture up. I, I don't know what <laughs> what they've done to the picture. Wow. But it's crazy the links they go through to hide this it's stuff. It's just bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre to me. I mean, I don't understand what the motivation is unless it's to deny the legitimacy of the Bible, you know, particularly the Old Testament. That's the only thing I can come up with. I mean, people bring up, oh, because of Darwinism and this goes against Darwinism. Well, Darwin studied the giants. He wrote about the giants that people had come across in Patagonia. He actually had seen photo but pictures of of the giants he had visited and seen the, the the giants firsthand he did mention that there were people who were giants they were a much larger statue than at stature than than he or other people um at that time so I, you can't say that it's about darwinism because he was acutely aware of people who were of giant stature at that time. So the only other logical conclusion that I can come up with is that it's a complete um, cover up of the Bible being uh, an actual historical document and not just about faith, but actually documenting things that were going on at that time. And one of them were the giants. And I, uh, it's the only thing I can think of. I can't think of any other reason why that would want to be covered up so much and, and what the lengths that people go to to um, to cover it up. It's just bizarre. I don't understand it. And one thing, too, you know, like we talked about before the show, these things are found usually by accident. Right. Farmers plowing, 
or building projects. So if there's one, there's more. Yes. It's just a matter of time. And the climate there, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like, it seems like that would be the perfect place to preserve bones. Yes, it's very little rain. Um, the climate of Aruba, it's a desert. Essentially, it's a semi-arid, arid climate. So uh, the very little rainfall. There's just, it's dry. It's these um, bones are in sand. So uh, yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that would prevent preservation of the skeletal remains would be their antiquity, that they would just fall into powder upon extraction, like what happened at the Malmuk Cemetery um, when they tried to extract some of the giants. So uh, I'm positive that there are more remains. Um, actually, sadly, uh, there are ca a cave system, a very intricate cave system. These islands are filled with caves. Bonaire actually has the most caves of any Caribbean island. And in these caves are really where the giants lived. They did ceremonies and they also buried the dead. And there was a series of caves on the coast where they're planning to put a windmill farm. So uh, I went and to the archeology, span um, archeologist here in Aruba. There's a, a very um, nice archeology span museum here in Aruba. It's sister uh, museum is the Smithsonian, which is interesting. Um, so I went to the head of archeology span there and said, you know, they're gonna build this windmill farm and it's right by those caves and no excavation has gone on there. And I, and he admits that there are burials there. The archeologist admits that there are probably giant burials there. And yet nothing is gonna be done to stop the project or um, he's not going to say anything because he doesn't think anyone will stop and or protect the area. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really devastating because the only thing I could hope for is if the project goes through is that they stumble across a giant skeleton in, in building these windmills. But um, of course then, you know, the damage will already have been done. So I, I don't know, you know, I keep telling people, you know, let's, you know, fight to at least do some excavations prior to them putting up this windmill farm so that we at least have some idea of what's in the ground. I mean, nothing's been done there. There's been no, archaeological excavations and and the caves are so vast and so large and so many and there are drawings in a lot of those caves and stone tools have been found by the caves giant stone tools so uh i think for sure there are skeletons there and they might be destroyed for good very shortly and which one thing i've uh which i got a, a replica of the uh peruvian skull that I thought was interesting, you know, is a lot of people want to point to, you know, elongation, you know, the, uh, the wrapping and the head binding. Well, even all the ones that we find, they still have their Sadra Sutra line. And a lot of these that we're finding don't have it. You know, that, that shows you that it's genetic. And also the, the mounting point, you know, the, 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 the magnum is all the way at the back. You know, all, the humans, it's just, you know, most humans are not most all are right here in the center so you can balance. So imagine, you know, this big elongated head, it's heavy all the way at the back. They had, that's why they had extra long necks. And even like in the Bible it talks about, uh, they called them the Anakim. In Hebrew, that means long necked people. And then you were talking about the cave system. And I thought of you when I seen this on a video, this optometrist was talking about the eye sockets and how they were 25 to 30% yes. larger and that they're even closer together. He said, it makes me think mm -hmm. of an owl. He said, because he said the eyes would be bigger. The pupils would, would be bigger. He said, and they have better depth perception. He said, there's not a doubt in my mind that these people, he said, just by looking at their eye sockets, he said, had night vision. Yeah. And that would explain why they, they were uh, cave exactly. dwellers. That's a great point. Yes. Same with the skeleton of Bonaire. Giant eye sockets. As a matter of fact, I showed the photos of the skeletal remains to the archaeologists here in Aruba. 
And that's the first thing he noted were the eye sockets. I mean, how they were so big and so not um, comparable to modern day humans, as well as where you were stating about the neck, because the giants of Aruba had cranial um, deformation, elongation, not attributed to head binding. There's never been any evidence of head binding. The archaeologists even admit it because they were looking feverishly for any evidence of artificial um, cranial deformation and they couldn't find it. So they had to admit it was, it was genetic and it was naturally occurring. And they too, the giants have that the connection point to the neck um, way back to account for the uh, weight of the cranium and that and their brain their brain is bigger so there is a lot more weight um, towards the back of the skull than towards the you know the top in the center so uh, the same anatomical differences can be found in the giant remains here in Aruba and Bonaire and Curacao this the same strange anomalies that make sense um, from an anatomical perspective and even their burials, uh, and that's one thing that I never tied together till I talked to Fritz. He had mentioned spoked burials. And I said, yeah, I said, uh, I talked to Heather Arnold. She said that she was seeing that in Aruba. And then I started talking about it, and he just basically just finished my sentence for me. He was like, yeah, the giant in the center, and uh, he said, people in a circle going out like spokes. And talk about some of that stuff you found. You even found not only giants but right. little people yes yeah, so the in um, one of the caves here that's exactly how the giants were the, the i'm sorry the burial was laid out with a central giant in the center and then the average statured and actually a couple of giants as well um coming out of the center burial like spokes in a wheel and that was the description by the archaeologists when they wrote about um seeing the the burial for the first time um, some of those people also had a cranial deformation, um, but it wasn't an elongation. It was this strange, like bulbous, like two bulbs, like um, coming out of their cranium. They were, it was like a heart-shaped cranium. And this is something that's seen in Colombia. There's been uh, skeletal remains in Florida, of the U.S. that look like this, Mexico, um, of these different people who appear to anatomically to look different um, with also this strange cranial deformation, also um, attributed to being natural and not artificial as well. So that's uh, one form of burial here on the islands. The other is um, the giants were obsessed with isosceles triangles. They, on their tools, they would stamp their tools with isosceles triangles. So when you're going through nature and you stumble across a tool, which there are so many everywhere strewn about, people just don't don't see them. They think, oh, it's a rock or, oh, it's just a shell or, oh, it's just a bone from a goat. Um, these are actually ancient tools. And you can see when they have these triangles stamped into these these tools, it's quite intriguing. But they also did their burials in the form of isosceles triangles, with the giants being at the points and then the average statured people um, making up the angles. And this is uh, something, a pattern that's repeated over and over within the Malmuk Cemetery and, um, and, and seen uh, throughout, the, the, not just here, but also in Curacao. They saw the same type of thing with these spokes in the wheel burial as well as the isosceles triangle burials. It's, it's quite intriguing. As a matter of fact, there are some megaliths here that when you connect them, they form a gigantic isosceles triangle on the, on the, on the earth, uh, on the land of Aruba, for example. <coughs> Excuse me. So these are, the repetition of the isosceles triangle doesn't just happen here in Aruba or, and in Curacao. It's a global phenomenon, this concept of equilateral triangles and isosceles triangles. Uh, Julie Ryder has come across this even in her uh, expeditions in Montana, USA, with her megaliths there. So this is something that's repeated over and over. And um, I, there's a lot of theories as to what was going on. Maybe um, one of my theories is that 
um, briefly after the summer solstice and the couple of days before and after, I think it's about nine days, right after the sun sets, the southern hemisphere constellation of Triangularum peaks above the equator just enough to see it in the early night sky. And that was the only con connection I could find with an isosceles triangle and why the what the reasoning would be behind having this repeated pattern and and this kind of obsession with the triangles um but maybe there's more i don't know but that's you know much more research would have to be done to determine that yeah and that's uh something that uh, fritz talks about he sees that in a lot of these uh mounds and these hinges mm. and stuff in the ohio river valley you see all these isosceles triangles and uh, he talks about uh, spherical trigonometry mm -hmm. and geometry and pi. And you see all this with these, you know, quote unquote, dumb <laughs> knuckle draggers <laughs> and how they line up, you know, with, with constellations and, and equinoxes and, and solstices. These people were looking at the heavens and mapping the heavens and the stars way back. And if, if and if they wouldn't map in it, I mean, so, somebody or something was was giving them this knowledge because obviously they had it and it's just mind-blowing to me like you said it's a, a global phenomenon that that you see and i guess uh go into because you already opened the the can of, of worms with the uh the astronomical alignments in the the megaliths uh, sh share some of your, your findings that you found uh down there in aruba Sure. Well, there's definitely the same types of things going on with winter solstice sunrise, winter solstice sunset, the spring um, solstice, uh, summer solstice, the spring equinox, the vernal equinox. There are, again, these megaliths are, and megaliths, by, by megaliths, I mean balanced stones, dolmen. Um, they are scattered throughout the island of Aruba, and they all have some sort of connection either the balanced stones, and these are megaton stones, maybe a hundred ton stones balanced on another stone. There, it's not from erosion. There was never, this isn't from, uh, these aren't glacial erratics. There were no glaciers down here. We're almost on the equator. So these were placed stones. And if you trace them, they follow the patterns of the petroglyphs, which is a, a north, uh, east, to a northwest to southeast um, parallel lines that intersect the island diagonally. And these boulders are also doing the same thing. They're along those same lines. And um, so far, I think I have about 13, but I know there are more. Um, a, a lot of them are on private property. And so I began this mapping of those um, balance stones a couple of years ago. And now I have enough to say with full confidence, there was a distinct pattern that was occurring. Um, so <clears throat> the, the, some of these stones are also aligned with the, the sunrise on the winter solstice, the sunset on the summer solstice or the sunrise. As a matter of fact, in Bonaire, where I just was outside of a cave system um, called Boca and Nima, there is a, a 10 foot tall a stone that of limestone carved into the form of a woman. So she's, a, and she has an elongated skull. So she, I, I think of her as maybe I'm looking into the eyes of what these giants must have looked like. Um, you can see her face still and her eyes. She was, she has like a, a veil on her. And I did some measurements by her. This is the second time I saw her. The first time I, I was so shocked, I couldn't believe it. And I, I didn't take all my measurements and everything, but this time I did, thank goodness. And she is a winter solstice sunrise marker. So she, as the sun rises on the morning of the winter solstice, it will glide up from her feet all the way to her head. And, um, and this is common with these monolithic stones to see that, for example, there's a rock in uh, upstate New York called Hawk Rock that uh, greets the um, spring equinox sunrise. And the same thing, the sun starts at the base and then just lights up the whole figure um, to the tip of the head. And it's when those lights come during those times that you also see fine details of these carvings that you can't see really any other times. 
they're specifically lit up during these events. I don't know what would light up on her, but she has a lot of detail. But for example, Hawk Rock in upstate New York, I've been visiting Hawk Rock for years. And it wasn't until I saw that sunrise on the uh, spring equinox, I noticed there were feathers that were actually feathers carved into the head of this, of this bird-like structure of this monolithic stone. So um, I think that that would be the same case with her. And, um, and she's believed to be like the divine, divine mother, like the divine feminine. Uh, and some people even still leave things at the base of this uh, giant woman's uh, feet, so to speak. And, um, and she is outside of a cave system with so many petroglyphs, some of them purported to be Mayan or proto-Mayan. And um, some of the petroglyphs believed to be star maps. So she's kind of guarding all of that knowledge. And incidentally, she is also a winter solstice sunrise marker, marker which I have not disclosed anywhere before. So this is, uh, I just got home Sunday night. So this is the first time I'm sharing it um, with your audience. I haven't posted anything. About I was about to say, you held that one out <laughs> on me last time. Yes, here. this is new information. So. Because I was sitting here and I was just like, what? An elongated statue? Yeah, she's, she's amazing. I have a, I have um, something on my Instagram about her, but I'll be posting more about her and, and all the shots and videos I took. Uh, I just have to compile all the information and kind of post a little teaser. Uh, but yeah, that was amazing. I, I knew she had to be in line with something because of her where she's located and what's behind her in the caves and how she's kind of the guardian of the cave. So she's definitely welcoming the winter solstice sunrise. Yeah, and that goes with the, you know, I remember on the, the Dig Bible podcast, you talked about how a lot of their their petroglyphs and, and their, their hinges and their megaliths and stuff like that all point to sun worship. Right. And I thought that was, was pretty pretty amazing because that's what you see as a common theme throughout the world also and you mentioned the the swastika and a lot of people don't know but that was originally uh, a symbol for the sun and and the rays coming off and spiraling and then you know the esoteric uh, the mystery schools you know kind of concealed and made it the the lotus flower but it was symbolic for the sun, but only the, the ones in, in the know knew it. And then you look at the, the mining of really shiny metals, golden metals like copper. Uh, they, they mined that heavily uh, in the Ohio River Valley. And then where you mentioned that, you know, there's lots of gold there. So you know that these people that, that worship the sun and made all these megalith sites commemorating the, the, the sunrises and the, the solstices and, and all these things, if and when they were finding this gold, they were definitely holding on to it and doing something with it for their worship. Well, that's I think that too, you know, because um, they had to have had access to the gold, you know. Not only that, there's crystals all over here. There's a mountain here called Crystal. Basically, it's it's um, translated to, it's called Cerro Crystal, Crystal Hill, filled with crystals, filled with gold. Um, so if we know about that and the early explorers and positive knew about it, well, they the giants definitely knew about it. And what, whether they were using it um, to as transferring energy sources or mining it or you know who knows but i don't think it's uh, i i don't know how they couldn't have known that there was gold and and put it to some use for them um in perhaps in a ritualistic esoteric way or maybe even just a scientific way you know for energy um yeah you don't know but i i, I can't imagine the giants not have been would not have been utilizing gold um, when the island is filled with it to this day, filled with gold. Now this uh, mother goddess elongated uh, skull uh, statue that you had found, is it in proximity to this, uh, the navel 
that you talked huh? about. There, yes. There's there is there is a a place there on the island that they called the basically the navel of the earth. Yes, great great memory and great question. Yes, yeah, so it's so funny to get to those sites. It's so difficult. And we had a lot of rain in Bonaire, and this is all dirt roads. And when the rain comes, the roads just wash away. And so to get to the mother, the divine mother stone in, in Onima and those petroglyphs, that road um, was so treacherous. And I got to that site, thank goodness. But then I wanted to, from that road, from another road you can try to get, because it's very close, is the, the mother stone, the, the, the navel of the earth, um, which is a huge limestone uh, monolith. And it is on the same trajectory, the same um, line as the, uh, the divine female statue. And it has a hole in the center where the giants have be were believed to have been born out of that um, from that navel is an umbilical cord that goes into the center of the earth. And in the center of the earth is the mother, is the source. And it was through that source that the giants were born. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I tried to get twice to that stone, the mother stone from the female statue. And I couldn't, the road was so bad. And then <clears throat> the, finally the third day I tried, but a different route, an equally treacherous road almost completely washed out, but really by the grace of God, I, I, we got to that stone and the clouds started getting black, black, black. And I knew, oh my gosh, you know, because once this rains, I could get stuck. It's like clay, you know, the, the sand is actually, is actually a clay and a lot of people get stuck in it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, but I was able to go there take great pictures. I haven't posted them yet either. Um, and really investigate the stone. I did take some measurements. I didn't see any alignments with the stone, but that would make sense because the real purpose of the stone was to give birth to the giants. Um, so yeah, it is, it's called the mother stone and it's, uh, it's the navel of the world in, in the, um, in the mythology here. And it is believed that is where the giants came from. It's a very, it's a very strange and eerie place. And, um, and it's very quiet. No one goes there. No one knows about it. And it's so hard to get to. And um, and yet it, there it stands. And uh, and for millennia, you know, it's been. And um, and it's a pity that everyone's so busy being on the beaches and diving and doing all this stuff in Bonaire. And maybe it's a blessing because it preserves the stone um, as well. But yeah, it was just crazy because as soon as we left the stone and we went back on that horrible road that was almost washed away and got to the main road, uh, which was paved, that rain started. So I thought, oh, it was just meant to be that we saw that stone at that time because that was the only window of the entire six days I was there where I could have seen that stone safely. So um, I'm glad I got to see it again. What about the, the birthing chamber that you had discovered? Is that in proximity? So the birthing chamber is here in Aruba. So at least that's the one that we okay. found. There, there, I'm assuming there are more on the other islands. And the birthing chamber, again, has this uh, petroglyph in it. It's in a cave, high up on a, in, in a cave that's almost inaccessible. It's very dangerous to access. Um, and on the cave wall are a series of slashes and then there's a petroglyph of a female also wearing a veil with an elongated skull with an indentation in the rock in the cave wall of a belly button. And then there's a baby inside, a little tiny baby with an eye. And that I, I purported that it's a birthing chamber and it has since been accepted here by the local community as being such because there's no other way to look at it. It's a universal petroglyph that's actually even found as far away as Japan, this concept of a female figure with a baby inside. Um, and so it, it, to me, it appears to be a birthing chamber because also these slashes or sometimes dots, not all the time, but in some cases, uh, particularly if you see petroglyphs out in uh, Sedona, Arizona, you'll see birthing chambers doing the same thing. And those slashes or dots are um, indicating how many births are going on in that chamber. And so I presume the giants were giving birth there. And that was those slashes were indicative of the births that were occurring in this chamber, which were in a lot. 
which, um, you know, goes to show why I believe the giants didn't just disappear and fall off the face of the earth, that they actually began breeding with average statured people and bred themselves out because there's no, they didn't just disappear. They probably got to the point where there just weren't enough giants to make more giants and they had to resort to sustaining their, their people a different way. And that was by, you know, mating with average statured people. And, um, and that would be, that would make more sense. And actually that's what science is determining now with a lot of these people that they said went missing. They just came off, fell off the face of the earth, that they actually just started breeding with different types of humans. And then, um, and then just became a, a you know, a, a just species that was combined instead of just this pure giant lineage, for example. So um, I think that's exactly what happened. Also, given the fact that the DNA evidence that's been done on this island, the studies as recently as 2002 of the original inhabitants of Aruba in terms of people who have lived here and never left the island, um, with all of the different cultures that have come through, the scientists determined that the people of Aruba have this DNA that's an archaic DNA that can be traced to the giants. So that just shows you that the, the people were, you know, the if Rubens are walking around today with DNA in them of the giants, that that's exactly what they did. They didn't just disappear off the face of the earth or go back into the center of the earth. They actually just started mating with average statute people. And, um, and then, yeah, they were no pure giants any longer well so far we you know we've everything we've talked about has been historical you know documented searchable but i can't let you go if we can't have some speculation you know, we gotta have some speculation that's the fun stuff so just you know this is you know outright speculation and hypothesis here okay so don't be fact checking us and coming down on us here but with the the biblical narrative, you know, the whole Genesis 6, you know, the, the, the fallen angels came down, bred with, with uh, human women and created these, these Nephilim giants, what they call the, the mighty men of old. And just like the megaliths and the hinges and the, the symbology, just everything, you know, without exception, even down to the myths, it is a global phenomenon you see it in every culture throughout the world and similar stories so i guess with with that in mind you know genesis 6 even says they were before and after the flood how do you think they survived the the flood the ones i mean i I think dispersing and hiding in these caves where, you know, because if you were researching giants globally, there's always going to be caves involved. I mean, I don't know of any giants that, you know, I, even in, uh, in the Midwest, there are caves, there are, um, places that they were, um, living or, you know, I, I I think they were sustaining themselves in, in caves underground maybe um but there had to be a, a way that they were um, keeping themselves protected and i think caves had a lot to do with that and um, i think you know yeah there's a chance that the giants here were nephilim that i you know the fact that they came from inside the earth and this is a common theme that these giants came from inside the earth and that the same mythology is here in the caribbean of these giants coming from inside the earth that's where they were born of um it's very interesting that they appear to have some connection with the with being inside earth so i don't think it's a stretch to think that they were hiding out in caves or some sort of underground cave systems that they worked. We have caves here that appear to be worked by human hands. In Easter Island, there are caves that are worked by human hands. And, and you can you see this all over the world, not just um, in those places I mentioned. So I personally think that they utilized um, cave systems and were able to protect themselves in that way. 
and that's how they ended up surviving. They, I think they scattered and then they were all everywhere. And then like, then they went in these caves. I mean, that's to me, the more logical um, assumption because, you know, a lot of the, the burials, for example, a lot of the ritual and um, petroglyphs are, and, and habitation that's been found is, is in caves. Well, Heather, uh, before we let you go, give everybody your information where, you know, your socials and your Facebook groups and how they can reach out and contact you and find more of your fascinating stuff. Yes. Thank you. So, um, I'm on Facebook, Heather L. Arnold. I have a page and a, a, a personal profile, but I share information across both as well as the islands of the giants page. I have, I also have a Facebook group called stones, bones, and the paranormal, which really goes into exactly all those things, stones, bones, and the paranormal and, uh, the connection between sometimes the connection between all those three. I'm also on Instagram, Heather L. Arnold and Twitter, Heather L. Arnold. And, um, I'm hope to be posting more about my discoveries, my recent discoveries in Bonaire on, um, on all of my social media and, um, actually on Twitter. Um, if you go to Heather L. Arnold, I do have a picture of the giant, um, female skeleton from last week. I have a picture standing next to her. So, and a brief description about her. So you can see her before I, um, post more about her and her alignments. That's awesome. Heather, thank you for, uh, taking time. I use the schedule, sit down and talk to us and guys, just so you know, she's under complete spiritual warfare. Okay. She just got back from vacation. She's, you know, I'm sure she wanted to relax and she agreed to sit down and talk to us and talk about these fascinating subjects and her air conditioner went out not once, but twice. And she's a trooper. She's still here. So thank you, Heather. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate it, Justin. Thank you. No, I, I love all of our conversations that we have and I love what you're doing. Keep digging. Thank you. I will.